and welcome to the Eastern Kicks podcast, a fortnightly magazine program about East Asian film, led by me, Andrew Heskins, founder and grandmaster of EastonKicks.com, and James Mudge, our leading writer. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at the latest films, news, festivals, and often chatting to filmmakers and stars along the way. Hello again, and welcome to our latest podcast. This episode, James and I have been joined by writer, curator and filmmaker Jasper Sharp. Hello. And we're going to be talking about BFI's Japan 2020, over 100 years of Japanese cinema, which is streaming now and throughout the year on BFI Player. Later on, our own Kai Van Schoelen will tell us how he got into Eastern flicks. But firstly, the important question. Uh, what are you drinking, Jasper? I have a fine uh, white wine. I'm not quite sure what it was. Probably a, a Sauvignon <laughs> or something. Sauvignon Blanc. But uh, yeah, so while in the mood, for a nice summer drink. Yeah, very nice. Nice. Okay, James. Um, I, I have what looks like milk, but it's actually uh, coconut milk with a quadruple rum in it. And then I'll be switching to whiskey. So it's it's kind of I don't know if it's a cocktail or just like an aggressive milkshake but it's okay well, I was going to ask I was quite curious about what that was in your hand <laughs> and I'm keeping with the uh, supporting the local guys Howling Hops yes. Brewery I've got a can of uh, Soft Top Soft Top Stout which is 6.5% 6.5 uh, nice dark looking uh, liquid there <laughs> it's, 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 yeah we, we, we are recording remotely we're, we're being very uh, we're being very conscious of it so we, when we can I can see it on the Skype Everything like, <laughs> and it does. It does look like a very, very dark, yeah, you know, proper it's dark. Not quite beer. As, as, as uh, thick as some of them. There, there's one I had from, uh, which I mentioned on the podcast several times. Actually, there's one I had a, at Christmas time, which was called Well Done, mm. and was thirteen <laughs> percent. That's like a wine. That kind of gets you through to the end of the podcast. It's not a beer. Pour so much as kind of you know, it's more sort of a jelly kind of thing coming out. Anyway, um, so let's get on with the chat. Uh, The BFI have launched Japan 2020, a season celebrating over a hundred years of Japanese cinema. Originally, it would have been screening at the BFI South Bank, with uh, some films going on to screen nationwide. But due to the current situation, those plans have changed somewhat hopes uh, that those screenings can take place later in the year but rather appropriately with the UK still on lockdown of a sort um, (laughs) they've moved online for now um, taking the films to the BFI player Mm. uh, a subscription service that has a 14 day free trial or 30 day if you go through um, add-on routes such as Amazon Prime there's a little bit of a hack there for you they'll be running various streams throughout the year strands for Akira Kurosawa Classics and Ozu are available now, um, with other strands including Cult, 21st Century and J-Horror selections later in the year. So anyway, Jesper, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for, for inviting me. Pleasure to be <laughs> no here. No problem at all. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to have you as well. So um, Jesper, we've asked uh, both you and James to pick a few selections. So I think you could start by going through your selections and, and tell us why you picked them. Okay, well, the very first film I've chosen is the uh, one that really began it all, and it's uh, Rashomon by Akira Mm. Kurosawa, 1950 film, which won the Golden Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival in 1951. And this is the film that, in the post-war period, is largely seen as uh, almost single-handedly launching this sort of uh, boom in interest in foreign interest in uh, film festivals in uh, Japanese cinema. And... Mm. Uh, It's an interesting title for a number of reasons. Mm. One of the things, uh, and I hope we can discuss this amongst ourselves, but um, 
Yeah. I always found when I first got into Japanese cinema, when you start mixing in circles, uh, particularly academic worlds, you know, there's some discussions around Japanese cinema is Kurosawa is sort of has this weird sort of status where people look at him and say he's not really a Japanese director. You, you get, and I think this is the thing that I want to come to. I've heard that. A lot yeah. of the choices uh, I've made have always been this this case of um, foreign perceptions versus. Japanese perceptions and we always if you ask someone to name you know the most famous Japanese film director they're inevitably going to say Kurosawa and they'll talk about Seven Samurai and Rashomon mm. uh, but um, you know a lot of academics say don't consider him Japanese uh, and one of these people that sort of gets reclaimed by or claimed by more general film critics shall we say who you know when you're looking mm. at lectures or articles or whatever about uh, Kurosawa's films, it will often be non-specialists of Japanese cinema, so he's sort of, it's sort of shunned by the Japanese community and embraced by the international sort of, uh, mm -hmm. these discussions of sort of auteurist cinema. And mm. um, it's sort of interesting to think of him that way. I mean, uh, Rashomon, I've chosen for the very reason that uh, it was this breakthrough title. Uh, it's a story uh, very famous uh, based on two stories from the 1920s but are set in the sort of middle-aged Japanese period. One is Rashomon, the other is Inner Grove. Two very short mm, stories yeah. combined uh, and it was really celebrated at the time of having this very novel narrative structure uh, where the, the basic setup is a princess uh, or noble woman in the Heian period is being escorted through a forest and she is assaulted and uh, uh, her husband murdered by a bandit or is it a bandit well, because we have now we go to flash forward to the Rashomon <laughs> gate and uh, the whole story is sold in sort of four parts where we look at it to the events of what actually happened through uh, different perspectives uh, and there is no conclusive evidence of what actually did happen at the end. Mm. Uh, so it mm. introduced, you know, it's been incredibly influential in terms of screenwriting. Uh, you can think of numerous examples that use these multi-threaded structures. Uh, can you think of any offhand? I don't know. The famous reference is always Hero, but you even think about things like Memento mm. or, you know, all these oh, different yeah. films yeah. That, that kind of have this idea of breaking down you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the, it's a kind of classic unreliable storyteller, isn't it? Mm. That you can't believe, you know, everybody has their own opinion on, uh, and their own viewpoint rather on, on, on what happened. And mm. you can't really believe anyone completely because it's actually going to be a composite of all of those. Mm. But yeah. was, it, was it ever actually re remade? Um, uh, yeah, there were actually a couple of remakes. So there's, so there's loads of ones which are, like you say, influenced, Andy, uh, which are taking this kind of, uh, you know, sort of different versions of the truth type stuff. But was there was it ever like officially, officially remade and stuff? Or? Well, in Japan, there's been a couple of films uh, later on. Actually, there was the the famous Pink director Hisayasu Sato made this V Cinema uh, film, mm. literally taking the name Yabu no Naka in the thicket of the of the second or in a grove of the second mm. story. So that pretty much tells the same story. Um, mm. In the 90s, again, this was, yeah, uh, Sato's film was in the sort of late 90s, but another one that came out, a bigger budget film, uh, was called Misty from 1997, I think it was. Not okay. remembered at all, but you know, it tried to do that typical yeah. thing of Japanese cinema and putting a mm. boy band or idol in the heart of the narrative <laughs> and uh, make it very glossy and it sort of, 
You know, what can go wrong? <laughs> you suddenly realise that uh, Rashomon and Kurosawa's films in general are not anything just to do with the uh, the script. Um, mm. I believe it was there was a Hollywood remake as well in the sixties. I've got a feeling there was, but I can't. Mm. You know, me. I should have checked it before. But. Yes, I should have checked that as well. I think no, it was no, something uh, like The Outcast or The Outlaw or something, but it wasn't. Um, it's not one that's certainly not as well remembered as Kurosawa's version. Um, um, outrage, 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 outcast, yeah. the outcast. I think, I th- yeah, I think it was called Outrage. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I've seen it. But it's interesting that that a film which has influenced so much, you know, hasn't necessarily gone, you know, so explicitly down that kind of. But I guess, route, I guess what was what's there's a couple of things that are interesting about the the narrative structure. I mean, say so we we've, we've seen it seep in this very. Uh, model of I think there was a film called Vantage Point about 10 years ago which tried oh, to do yeah. a similar thing but in real time um, mm. we can look at things like the very end of Jackie Brown where they replay the whole scene mm. through with different viewpoints uh, mm. I'm thinking of the I'm a big fan of the writer Lawrence Durrell who uh, wrote the Alexandria Quartet where basically he had this uh, novel um, set in the wartime period in Alexandria where there's a guy first story Justine the narrator falls in love with this woman called Justine. It's all about this sort of relationship. The second mm. part, the second novel, it's part of this four-part novel series, is told from another point of view, from another character who was there in the background, who says, mm. yeah, you know, it's, that's not exactly how I remember things from my point of view. Having, you know, <laughs> he, he gets sent the manuscript to this first novel and, and, you know, and he looks back and says, no, no, it didn't happen like this. There are things you didn't know going on behind the scenes and we switch mm. between four different narrators. Um, okay. So that's quite interesting. I mean, that was published in about 55, and I think that's quite possibly, probably influenced by Rashomon, because I think Rashomon, mm. uh, actually, by the, it can't, it can't have been coincidence. I mean, I don't know in terms mm. of a literary mm. device. And it did, it did get, you know, it was, uh, as you say, it was, it was widely seen and acclaimed, so. But big chances that that, that it was picked yeah. up. I think it's yeah, it's highly likely that a high-profile novelist who was in touch with the art scene of the time, the discussions would, would certainly have been aware of this. Mm. One of the funniest things I found out about Rashomon, and I did some research on this a couple of years ago, was looking back at the old the reviews in the Insight and Sound and, and various other <laughs> British publications <laughs> when it happened in relation to its Japaneseness, is that. A lot of the the uh, the uh, reviewers, I mean, people like Lindsay Anderson, were, were like mm. looking at it and going, "Well, it's so full of this Kabuki-esque moments, and it's inspired by no drama." And of course, this is the irony because I'm saying like Rashomon. I mean, with Kurosawa, everyone thinks about he's got this very Western style, uh, which mm. is influenced by John Ford. Certainly, I think mm. in terms of aesthetics, he doesn't go for that very flat look. He he definitely uses lots of this sort of use of perspective and chiaroscuro and, and dramatic focus on the main characters, which is not typical of Japanese cinema of that mm. period. So the idea that they're addressing these traditional art forms where actually Rashomon is about as far away as you can get from that mm. uh, is quite funny. But in line with this, what became apparent was that everyone who saw that film in Venice at the time, it didn't play with English subtitles. It played in Japanese with Italian subtitles. Oh, so wow. no one actually mentioned the, the script writing structure because so, they didn't understand what was going on. So obviously these British critics were caught in the middle of this critical milestorm going, oh, it's a great film, Rashomon. 
missed the very <laughs> aspect that uh, made it so unique. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in general, I would say Rashomon is not my favourite Kurosawa film by quite a long way. Um, but I think what's really interesting about Kurosawa, like as I said, he's one of these people that's been reclaimed by general film critics, the, the sort of, you know, cinephile community, the international cinephile community, but not someone who's ever discussed within the context of Japanese cinema. And again, you look at something like Seven Samurai, um, it's not based on original material at all. It's set in a historical period, but Kurosawa basically mm. originated the story uh, with Hashimoto, his scriptwriter. Uh, and so there's no, it's very general in its approach. It's not linked to the specifics of, of Japanese legend or, or traditions or literature or anything. And mm. um, I think that's where Kurosawa is very powerful. Uh, but you could say he's one of these directors that he's, his films have, are all very different, uh, mm. but they've all inspired like genres of their own. I mean, mm. <laughs> I mean, do you think yeah. about something like even the Sanchiro Sagata? I mean, the, the, the martial arts genre almost can be traced back to uh, this judo film from 1943. Uh, you look at Yojimbo, which of course looked at the, the, the American Western for its inspiration and then Italian director Sergio Leone looked at it and said, oh, let's do this. We realize you can do these films. They don't have to be specific to America. So you've got the spaghetti Western almost comes yeah. out of that. Mm. You've got Hidden Fortress. I mean, where would mm. uh, Star Wars be? You know, that, you know, <laughs> Star Wars fans need to go and back and watch. Lucas with the sliding. Uh, <laughs> of course. <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love also, I think my favorite too is, is Shakespeare adaptations, uh, mm. Throne of Blood. Uh, yeah. You know, this great example of a, um, he didn't use a single word, a single translated line of dialogue from the original play, but just uh, basically uh, made it uh, and set mm. it in medieval Japan and it made complete sense on that level. Uh, mm. Same with Ran, and I think Ran mm. probably is, for me, my favourite Kurosawa film. I just think it's as oh, astonishingly, wow. you know, visual and powerful. His use of the weather and his dramatic focus on people within a, an environment, um, which you can see in Rashomon. I mean, the mm. the uh, cinematography by Kazuo Mir. Uh, Miyamoto, I think it's called. Um, it's very difficult to film in forests, and this was the whole point. They said you, you, you're looking in a forest when it's like bright sunlight above. You get like very hard shadows, and when mm. you're filming in monochrome, you know this trying to actually master that sort of control of the light levels and, and do it, put it to sort of dramatic service of the, the plot is very difficult. And and they he pulled it off totally in Rashomon. So I think yeah, and also of course we forget that you know we always think about uh, the samurai films, but there's all the um, the contemporary set stuff as well. I mean Stray Dog mm. is another, you know, basically mm. a police crime detective story set in the occupation period Japan. Just like another absolute masterpiece. It's interesting because like I said. I mean, when we started Midnight Eye in 1999, 2000, me and Tom were like, basically, everyone is always talking about Ozu and, and Mizuguchi mm. and Kurosawa. Do we really need to go back and revisit these films? So yeah. I'd, I've never gone on a big Kurosawa binge and said, oh, I'm going to watch every single <laughs> Kurosawa. So I've encountered them whenever I've had someone's given me a bit of work and said, can you, you know, mm. focus on this film? And I always say, oh, God, I don't, you know. Seven Samurai, four hours of people charging around in the mud. Uh, but <laughs> when you actually do <laughs> watch them, they are incredibly, you realise that they are 
absolute masterpieces. I mean, they're, they're, there's, it's not just hype. It's not just people singling out like one particular filmmaker as an ambassador from a country. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, these films do have a, an incredible power to them. Mm. I mean, also, I mean, I think like Throne of Blood's a really interesting one. Like, uh, he, he gets away with like very long sequences where not a lot happens. Mm. So I think in yeah. Throne of Blood, the bit where they get lost in the fog in the moor, it goes on yeah. for like about five minutes with the, the horses <laughs> rearing up and then charging into the white, you know, opaque fog. And uh, yeah. there's a similar bit in uh, Stray Dog where the guy is going mm. on this big sort of looking through occupation era slum town in Tokyo where he just sort of walks through this sort of street it's like an eight minute sequence just trying to to find the criminal mm. and, it, and he mm -hmm. gets away with it i mean it just goes against any sort of conventional dramatic wisdom at the moment so yeah oh with throwing of blood i mean i just it's and as i say not having not seen it on the big screen it's just incredibly atmospheric uh, mm. and even like the use of like shadow and light in the film is having you know how close it is to you know Macbeth and everything being yeah you know another subject but uh just the the way that it's actually kind of like a horror film, like the way it's kind of shot, I think. Or, you know, a horror oh, film. Yeah, I think it definitely, I would say it's a, yeah, yeah. a gothic, certainly. Gothic, yeah, definitely. And so. and actually, this is another interesting thing about Kurosawa, because everyone looks at, um, I guess, could could I use this to segue into the next choice, actually? But uh, <laughs> when we compare like, very neat, Kurosawa very with Ozu, <laughs> you know, mm. the way that... Um, Kurosawa is seen as the most Western of Japanese directors, but the way that mm. Ozu is seen as the most typically Japanese of directors. Um, mm. And also, Ozu was always seen as stylistically very conservative. So they make a big mm. deal about, he didn't make his very first color film until 1958 with Equinox Flower. Well, Kurosawa didn't make his first color film until Dodeskadan in 1970, which is wow. really late. So, I, I mean, so yeah. I don't know it's about a case of, you know, being resistant to embracing new technologies, but I, I think, you know, I think is if, if you've mastered one aesthetic, um, mm. why would you bother to change and, and sort sure. of go out of that comfort zone? But yeah, I mean, this also this idea about Ozu uh, being, you know, the most sort of typically Japanese director. And, and, you know, once you start having this discourse around a filmmaker, you, people get resistant to the work. I mean, I was, for a very long time with Ozu, I thought, I'm like, this sounds like watching paint dry. I don't want to watch a flower in a vase or see lapping against the waves, you know. But um, so my choice for the Ozu film is the 1959 film Good Morning, which was my entry point into Ozu. And I would say that if you are going to ever if you have never seen an Ozu film, don't watch Tokyo Story, first of all. I think Tokyo Story is a, a masterpiece, but it's quite heavy going. I mean, it's, it's longer than the other stuff. But Good Morning is a film about a, a community, a middle-class community somewhere in the suburbs of uh, Tokyo. Uh, I don't think it's ever really specifically said where it is, but... Um, the main drama, I mean, a lot of Ozu's films aren't a single storyline. It's all about all these different characters going off, having their own narrative arcs, which actually all tie together really sort of um, neatly. And uh, the main dramatic drive of this film, apart from there's, there's one thing that um, it's the two kids, the two young kids, like age, I think, eight and six or something, or maybe even younger, uh, who 
the, the main theme of this, the film is all about disconnection, about how in this sort of new urban society no one really talks to each other. And so these kids are like begging their parents, like going, you know, we want a TV. It's you know, the era when TV was coming in. And the, kid, uh, the parents, the father going, no, because if you get a TV, you're not going to talk with each, uh, you're not going to talk anymore, you're just going to spend ages gazing at the corner of the room, watching... Sounds very prescient, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 well, no, but this is the thing, this is also, it's timeless. It's, it is absolutely timeless. So it, it actually, it, it is not just purely Japanese, it's not purely Japanese 50s, it's just, it's, it's something that is universal, still resonates to this day. Um, so the thing is that these, these two kids, they decide to go on a, um, a strike where they decide not to talk to the, the parents anymore. So, uh, and, and the parents, they're shouting at them and they're just there with their mouths clamped. And uh, this is counterpointed with, you know, they, they say, Why should, what's the point of talking? You adults spend all your time talking. You never actually listen to each other. And mm. so this is interwoven with all these other stories about, uh, I think there's like a, a woman who must be about 20 and they're trying to find her. She, she's trying to find a, a boyfriend and there's a guy who obviously likes her but he never says it and then there's this miscommunication with who's embezzled some money in the um in this sort of uh, housewives sort of community i don't know what you call it a raffle scheme or something and um mm -hmm. and uh so it's just the way everything is geared around this theme of miscommunication but it's tight it's a tight film it's 90 minutes long uh Ozu mm. is not slow the f no scene is ever allowed to play out longer than it needs to um mm. Mm. there's a lot of crap also i hear about like the uh the use of pillow shots uh you know with these <laughs> everyone talks this is, it ties back to the 70s i think when there were critics oh. like donald ritchie were trying to say this it has this japanese essence so there are these these scenes with cutaways that don't have any people in it and apparently don't have any meaning to the narrative, so it could be shots of like, a, yeah. I don't know, a flower in a vase, a kettle in a living room with no people in it. You know, this idea that objects have this this dramatic life of their own, um, mm. and this sort of spacing that uh, it's, it's meant to be zen. You know, that uh, you you, you uh, have these gaps in the drama which are just filled by scenes of washing on the line. Um, but I don't think these. I mean, they're just like punctuation marks in the narrative, and, and also they're interesting because you look at, say, his last film he did, which was obviously looking at how Japan is becoming really modern, modernizing, and uh, an autumn afternoon. There's this repeated scenes where the the old father always goes to the same bar all the time, but it's not like a bar with like it used to, used to in the olden days. It would have been had like I don't know a lovely scene with people drinking outside this is a bar tucked in a back alley where there's like petrol mm. tanks stacked up outside it so there is this sort of contextual pessimism and, and in good morning it's this cutaways to shots of like you know train lines coming outside people's back doors and it's shots of aerials on roofs um but i, mean, I think the most important thing i could say about uh, good morning is it's so fun i mean like a lot of the scenes involving the kids, I mean, it's the, they're just chatting with each other, just like the neighborhood kids having this rivalry. They're having a farting competition. So you just get these scenes <laughs> of like, the kids are bonding over farting, which probably is more meaningful as they point out of the narrative than much of the adult conversation. So it's, it's, it plays yeah. like it's a colorful, tightly paced, humorous slice of everyday life. Like, uh, you know what mm. I say, it's like Ozu elevated the soap opera to the realms of high art. And this, what you've got is a soap opera that, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's perky. It's good. Cool. I, I mean, I, I have to admit, I mean, Ozu is one of those guys that I've seen a few of his films. I never, 
I, you know, sac- sac- sacrilege, but I'm not. I'm not a massive, not a massive fan of Ozu. I have to admit. I, I've seen you know Tokyo Story and whatnot, and a couple of others, but I, I don't know. I, I, I can totally appreciate and see you know the artistry and the importance of it in there, but I've never. I've never enjoyed, never actually enjoyed. But I mean, I haven't yeah, seen, yeah. I, I haven't seen this film. But he's just ne- there's something is, is never. I've never really connected with his work insofar as I've only seen a few. But yeah, I mean, I think the style is unique. You know, the the, mm. the actual when you look at them and go, how does he do those island matches? They shouldn't work. You know, the the way that yeah. shots are comp- compiled and and um, I think there's also there's. Light Ozu and Dark Ozu, and I, I think something like Tokyo mm-hmm. Story is a bit heavy, but there's yeah, things like okay. Equinox Flower, Late Spring, mm-hmm. even, um, mm-hmm. and and Good Morning, uh, very easy to watch, and you know, mm-hmm. short run time. Also, you have to remember the um, pre-war work. I mean, this idea that he was the most Japanese of directors. When you look at the early silent stuff, I, I think uh, mm-hmm. the BFI've got quite a lot online. Uh, Dragnet mm-hmm. Girl, gangster movie. Which is it okay. feels it feels like a nineteen thirties uh, American gangster movie. Uh, That's interesting. So the, yeah. his influences were at the beginning. It was stuff like Harold Lloyd and, and Buster Keaton, and and you look at the okay. the college comedies, mm. uh, and they are incredibly American influenced. So uh, it's almost a totally different director. Um, That's interesting. Mm. And I should mention as well because yeah. Good Morning is always seen as this remake of his his uh, nineteen thirty film I was born but which is all about kids who move with their salaryman father into the suburbs and they end up fighting with all the neighborhood boys and um, and then uh, they have this uh, the father has this no oh, the, the father's boss has like this 9.5 millimeter pathy baby home movie camp camera and so mm. They get invited round. The family get invited round to the boss's house to look at uh, these home movies at some point, and they see their dad being humiliated, uh, <laughs> by, by the boss, like kicking him up the arse and doing all this sort of comedy <laughs> movies. With, and um, and you know, it's it's this subtle stories. So the boy boys learn about like the class structure, and they're going, "Why? Well, how could you let yourself mm, be yeah. treated like an absolute idiot like that when you know we're mm. fighting his son, you know, in the playground?" And he goes, "Well, mm-hmm. this is what you've got to learn about life." So I think mm. that's what I like about Ozu. There, there's a gen uh, universality to it. I don't know. I, th- I think. I mean, I think you know, speaking both for myself and I guess for you know, some of the general audiences who might have been going to the BFI, would have been interesting to see you know the reception or reaction from some you know some sort of general film fans to like say mm. a Kuros- some of the Kurosawa stuff compared to some of the some of the you know the Ozu stuff I've written and that because I think the Kurosawa the Kurosawa stuff is maybe an easier easier sell I think maybe to some you know modern or younger audiences I think it's an easier sell but I actually find something like Seven Samurai is is probably more of a harder slog than Mm. uh, than Ozu's stuff I mean talking about I mean I remember like actually seeing a lot of Kurosawa stuff Uh, BFI did a season in 2000-2001 so I saw Ikiru there there, which is obviously the scene as one of Kurosawa's one of Kurosawa's masterpieces I mean he made about 15 masterpieces (laughs) one of his many many masterpieces (laughs) but the the story of like uh, one of the modern day stories about a a civil servant local town official who realizes he's got stomach cancer and has given time like a couple of months to live so he spends the rest of his time uh trying to put through this this project of draining a little 
swampy area in the main sort of suburb which has got mosquitoes mm. and it's unhygienic whatever and put in a children's playground so yeah. it's this go the, the message that it's the little people that can change things and uh you know mm. you just have to be determined but like the the first half of the film i think is amazing but then you get to the final hour and it's all his colleagues sit around after he's died sort of mm -hmm. sitting around discussing his legacy and has he been successful in his yeah. life what is the meaning of life sort of thing mm. and i think it's very touching but at the same time dramatically i think those scenes go on too long and i think when i look at an old zoo film i'm seeing something immaculately composed you know i think yeah. they are beautiful pieces of filmmaking mm -hmm. and just one final thing i would say in 2003 we celebrated it was his centenary of his birth and for midnight eye uh, I remember at the time saying, let's get together our writers. We had about four or five permanent writers at the time. Let's just do a whole load of capsule reviews. We'd all just binge our way through Ozu. And for me, Ozu is a bit like, not quite as bad as Naruse. I think individual films are masterpieces, <laughs> but it's like, I couldn't eat a whole one. You know, it's like, I don't want to sit there and like watch 20 Naruse films in the space of a week, because yeah. it would just, I just want to kill Ow. myself at the end of it. Yeah, and so I think something, also it's the same thing. Painful. I want to dip in and dip yeah. out. But yeah. What, yeah. what I found was that a lot of the people I asked to write were like saying, oh my God, I've never actually sat down and properly watched mm. Ozu without, and, and I remember one guy, uh, Nicholas Rucker, uh, who was at film school at the time, he was going, it's just so good for a filmmaker to look at this sort of stuff because you realise what you can do just with the pure mm. film craft of the filmmaker. You don't need the big action. You don't need, you know, get back mm -hmm. to the heart of things, the characters. So I, yeah. I love, I mean, I love Ozu. I think he's brilliant. And I, I much as I thought he used to be overrated, I think mm -hmm. ditch all this talk about mono no aware and transcendental style and stuff and just look at them as pieces <laughs> of home dramas and character studies they're great fun mm. yeah I, I would have i mean if the all things been equal i definitely would have dipped back in uh and seen a couple yeah. of these on the big screen and everything because both because you know i've only seen them on you know on probably not even great quality dvds but it's one of those things when, when i say i'm not a massive fan I, you know there is a slight tinge of guilt to that cause I, I, should, <laughs> I, I should be at least i should be i don't have to be a fan but i should be able to qualify that by by actually saying i've seen more than like two or three films you know what i mean yeah, no, I know. I mean, there are directors that you you sort of think. I mean, I I don't I'm, don't have yeah. a lot of time for Goddard, for example. I mean, I, I, I find he, <laughs> neither, he is neither really do hard I. work. Neither, you know. I'm not a Goddard fan at all. No, <laughs> Fellini. You know these these great names where you sit there and go, I'm not getting this at all. Um, I mean, I think Ozu as well is very consistent. So compared with mm. Mizuguchi, again, it took me a long, yeah. long time to to encounter Mizuguchi. I think mm. Mizuguchi Ugetsu and Sancho the Bailiff are some of the most beautiful films ever made. I mean, uh, Sancho mm. the Bailiff would definitely be up there. But he also did a lot of stuff that doesn't quite hit the mark in the same way that Kurosawa or Ozu's films do. My name is Kai van Zulen, and I'm a Dutch film critic and postman. Besides writing for a number of Dutch publications, I also run Frameland, an English language film site dedicated to the unknown and the unloved in cinema. I was just a young boy, 
Still in school. I was already a budding cinephile, but I had not really seen any non-Western cinema when I started hearing more and more about Japanese films. From friends, who were into anime, and from other cinephiles on the web. It was they who recommended me to watch Miike Takashi's Audition. At the time, any cult-oriented video store worth its salt carried that film, and I was quickly able to rent it. My friends and me sat down to watch it that night, like any other Friday night. It turned out, however, that it would not be a night like any other, and that I was not at all prepared for Miike's onslaught on the senses. More than anything, I still remember the grin on my friend's face, because for minutes on end, I had to turn away from the screen. I was scared and sickened, and it almost turned me off of what I now thought was Japanese cinema. Luckily, I quickly was made to give Japanese cinema, and by extent Asian cinema, another shot. Around the same time, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill came out in cinemas. I was immediately obsessed, and came home raving about it to my dad. I was aware that the film was full of references to Asian genre cinema, and I wanted to know more about that. My father listened patiently, and then replied that if I wanted to see a real sword fighting movie, he had a video he wanted us to watch. So, the next Friday, my father opens up the little VHS drawer beneath the TV and pulls out an old tape he once copied of some other tape or TV. It had big black letters on it, spelling out the word Yojimbo. Two hours later, I was completely into Kurosawa and back into Japanese cinema. A week after that, my father sealed the deal with Ikiru, which made me feel feelings about film that I didn't yet know I could feel about film. Even more than the lone samurai, the dying bureaucrat cast a spell on me, which to this day has not been lifted. That winter, Kitano joined Kurosawa in my new pantheon of gods. The next spring, they were joined in turn by Zhang Jimo and Zhang Wu, and I was past the point of no return. A lifelong love for all kinds of Asian cinema was born that season. Jesper, shall we move on to your next choice then? My final choice is Hanabi by Takeshi Kitano. And uh, again, this ties in, I mean, all of the stuff, I mean, I have to say that the BFI program is very, it's as you'd expect it, you know, which mm. is, you look at it and think, oh, no real surprises there. But then also it's got the other advantage that I tend to forget having looked at me watching Japanese film religiously for 20, 25 years is that a lot of people don't know this stuff at all. And, yeah, uh, that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, when I when we started at Midnight Time, when I started watching films in the mid-90s, Kitano was the man. He was everywhere. Mm. And um, it's so difficult to... I, I think we actually said it in the, in the, in the intro of the first Midnight Eye book. Uh, Tom wrote the intro and he said, when we started, it was Kitano, Kitano, Kitano. And that was... He overshadowed absolutely everything. And... I think it gets to a problem, you know, when you get certain directors get 
festival programmers get fixated yeah. on that uh, they will put anything out uh, mm. with their name attached to it. And you know, I have to be honest, in the early 2000s, Kitano <laughs> put out a lot of crap. <laughs> but And it's so easy to... Uh, I think I went through a stage after we wrote the Midnight Eye book, which was came out in 2003, after that, just not feeling any need to watch Kitano films. No. So it was only fairly Go recently when I revisited all this stuff that made a really big impact on me uh, in the 90s. And I sort of yeah, was did. scared, mm. thinking, was it me? Was it just because I was really naive? I didn't know anything about film or Japanese <laughs> film. And maybe this stuff is crap, I can't remember. Yeah. And mm. then you go back and watch um, all of that stuff from Violent Cop, like Boiling mm -hmm. Point, Scene at the Sea, Gloss mm -hmm. Over Getting mm -hmm. Any, uh, Kids Return. I mean, Sonatine, I think, is just uh, a masterpiece. But I think um, yeah. the reason why I've singled in, I would probably say, like, Scene at the Sea and Sonatine for me is where he was just perfect. He hit his stride. Uh, mm -hmm. But Hanabi just has this just confidence. It's just this refinement of this is like the essence of Kitano, I think, uh, which is why I chose it. Um, again, I guess I should uh, describe the plot a little for those that haven't seen it, uh, <laughs> although uh, I assume everyone has, but they probably haven't. Um, so it's Katano plays a uh, police detective, uh, and we always think of him, everyone goes on about, oh, Katano always plays Yakuza films, but actually you look at his body work and he hardly, mm. there's very few actual That's true, Yakuza yeah. films in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's wounded in the line of duty, uh, at the same time as his uh, colleague, played by Renosugi, a, guy, uh, a character called Hashibe, and the colleague ends up paralysed in a wheelchair. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Kitano's character is very tra traumatised, uh, ends up leaving the police, but he has other problems in that he has a wife who's terminally ill, and he also has the uh, Yakuza chasing him, a bunch of loan sharks, uh, wanting him to repay a uh, large debt he's accrued due to his wife's illness. Him and his wife are bonded by this death of their daughter, who was uh, six, which is alluded to in various flashbacks. And uh, he just basically, I guess, breaks down and goes off on this big road trip uh, across Japan with his wife and uh, ends up fighting back against the Yakuza. And, uh, I won't go into the ending, but it's it's a spiraling no descent into uh, oblivion, really, which is very <laughs> typical, I think. Of um, I don't know if that's what what attracted me to Japanese cinema in the nineties, but a lot of it was very negative. You know, it's a, there were lots of uh, suicides at the end and and uh, characters killing one another, and there was never any sense of hope. Do, do, do you know? think like there was a lot of that? Do, do, do you think there was any reason why that was so much of a a kind of a common theme at, mm. at that point in this. Oh, I think it was definitely, sort of you know, it was, it was the whole collapse of the, uh, you know, the bubble economy. Japan had sort of risen mm. to this great economic mm. power and then uh, the economy stagnated and it was just like a lot of people were driving themselves into the grave working uh, for mm. a living but uh, thinking, suddenly thinking, why? Then you had stuff like the own sarin gas attacks and the Kobe earthquake, mm. these national traumas where people sat back and go, is it, is anything all worth it? What's the point of it all? And, and this again tied in with this sort of pre-millennial pessimism as well. So it's not just Katano. You see it in a lot of people. Like, I think like Shinji Aoyama's uh, work, uh, like Eureka, was like sort of probably the mm. zenith of that particular craze. 
Piyoshi Kurosawa. I mean, what a mm. gee, brilliant director. But you know, stuff like Cure and and Pulse. I mean, he really nails it. That that feeling of like yeah. uh, it's business. As you, well, I mean, we're living through dread. a Piyoshi Kurosawa film now, aren't we? Really, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, life goes on, but something there's something dark lingering underneath the surface. <laughs> But again, I mean, I, 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 I remember at the time all of this um, criticism, especially French critics, kind of about how Kitano stuff, it's slow, slow and tranquil, and it's like a very Japanese sort of uh, view of like just stillness and then erupting into violence, you know. <laughs> does, and, and Kitano, does sound very French. He did, he played on it a lot. He yeah. played on this, yeah. you know, I think mm-hmm. Brother, you know, his American, uh, his attempt yeah. at the Hollywood crossover. Oh, that's right. I forgot played that on film. this whole idea of like Japanese being inscrutable and unpredictable. Mm. That's um, right, yeah. And of course, we should mention if that those who don't know, and I don't know how you cannot know, but uh, Kitano being a massive media star, and I, and I always struggle to find uh, sort of corollaries in, in Western culture. I mean, given that he was massively on TV, I mean, someone like Chris Tarrant, <laughs> Ben Elton, Michael Barrymore. I mean, where do you, I mean, it's just, he was, he was you know, when I, li- I lived in Japan from 2001 to 2005, and every time I switched the TV on, he would be there mm. in the same way that Jonathan Ross was on TV at the same time mm. in the UK. So he's a massive TV star. So the idea that he would go off and make these really bleak films <laughs> In the meantime, <laughs> beautifully artistically composed. I mean, perfectly handled films as well. It's, it's, it's not something you see from Jonathan Ross, is it? No. Chris Harrison. Thankfully, not so much. <laughs> I can't remember. I think I wrote the piece on the BFI, and I, I always struggled. But I, I said like when Katana got invited to uh, direct uh, Violent Cop was because uh, Fukusaku dropped out of the mm. project. So I said it would be like Michael Winner standing aside to let uh, Ben Elton. The direct, <laughs> <Dirty> <laughs> <Harry>. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you can't make any comparison at all. <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting because I've never, you know, I think I've seen pretty much all of his films and probably a lot of most of the ones he started. But I've never seen any of his TV work, not even, not even like a minute of it. To be oh, honest, oh really? God, yeah. well, it, well yeah, it's that... probably true for a lot of people, you know, especially people, you know, who were, you know, I was getting exposed to Japanese cinema probably yeah. from like the very late nineties kind of onwards so I think probably a lot of people are the same you know the first stuff I saw him in would have been like Violent Cop and things like that so that's yeah. and you know back in those days was that pre-internet I don't know Yeah. whenever the internet whenever the internet was invented a mysterious <laughs> straight straight that would have been I mean, I think, uh, uh, Hanabi but, yeah. was sort of internet time basically when people okay. were in the buzz um, Although I was I was in Scotland then the internet came five years later. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember the Zatoichi stage dolls. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you must have seen Takeshi's Castle, surely. Oh, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, the Mad I Game Show. I think it was right? on one of the channels, was wasn't it? Like Channel Five or something. Yeah, it was Sky. I mean, that was the funny thing because I, I mean, talking about these sort of Western and and, uh, and Japanese perspectives. When I was in Japan, I don't think you know. There's always this. Thing that everyone says no one ever recognized uh, Katano as a filmmaker they just thought of these films as like these sort of indulgences something you did on the side and there was true to some extent uh, that stuff like Sonatine and Hanabi were general cinema viewers would have found it 
quite hard going in Japan. Yeah. They wouldn't be mm. seeing stuff that we didn't, but they would be seeing like Kitano's, their familiar face, sort of uh, mm. blasting people's brains out. But um, when, around about the time Dolls and Zatoichi came out, I and mean, this was when I was in Japan, it mm. seemed like he made a very conscious effort to make a mainstream film. With Zatoichi, he pretty much did it. It was like there's massive yeah. publicity around it. And mm. I remember like going to the cinema when Zatoichi first came out, going to quite a big uh, cinema in Ginza, and just seeing mm. these middle-aged middle housewives coming out in the, the matinee screening, knowing that he'd won a prize at Venice, Mm-hmm. And obviously curious about what is Takeshi doing now, and and coming out and, and going, well, it's not as good as the old Zatoichi films. But <laughs> shortly afterwards, I came back and saw like my sort of um, seven-year-old sort of nephew watching Takeshi's Castle, and I was trying to explain to him who Takeshi was. And of course, Takeshi Kitano has been cut out, and and the Takeshi's Castle was actually re-edited for for these uh, packages from an original eighties game show, basically. Oh, it, it's a knockout, but everything yeah. would have been anchored around Katano's personality, and so they put it on Sky, cut out all traces of Katano apart from his name in the title. So that, I, I never, I never made the connection. You know, before you said the ticket, <laughs> I mean, I know Takeshi's Castle from when I was, you know, knee high to to grasshopper and stuff, but I, really? I had no idea. That's that's come on, that's really. Come on, now, I was thirty. But <laughs> well, knee height or a grasshopper well yeah. with a very big grasshopper that's all it was, it was a giant Scottish grasshopper it, uh, it might have escaped off of a Godzilla movie <laughs> but I, seriously I had no idea no idea whatsoever that, that was connected to him even no, so that, and if they did it to the moat I guess that kind of explains it but even just now thinking oh, oh Takashi's castle so you look at any Kitano film, something like Sonatine, where they're playing beach games, you know, and they're doing mm. that fake sumo wrestling on the beach or blasting cans <laughs> with each other. Every single Kitano film has like a sequence where all the characters get together and play a game, and yeah. and, and so Boiling Point, you've got the first half hour almost of like a mm. baseball game, but it's like with um, the basketball game in Brother with like Omar Epps and uh, Susumu Terajima they were like fighting each other and it's uh, it's amazing it's just like he does lots of stuff that a lot of games but a lot of it refers to this whole idea of like him as this sort of prankster um, mm. sort of personality where he sort of presides over this mayhem in front of him like this sort of impassive sort of slightly imperatorial what's the word imperial face I don't know so <laughs> <laughs> I always say there's like a, always a war between Katana the director and Katana the the actual actor who, who's directing mm. and his public face versus what he wants to mm. be. So, which yeah. is always interesting in his films. I think he lost the plot, you know, in the in the two thousands. But <laughs> but I mean, uh, we should mention here that the other film, yeah. um, a scene at the sea, nineteen ninety three film, which was the first time he ever took over editing. And it was the first mm-hmm. film of his that he didn't appear. It's his third film. I think it's his best film. Uh, uh, well, no, I don't I've think I've never, never seen that. Oh, God, about the, I've the, never seen the deaf mute surfer and his girlfriend. Yeah. And um, it's beautiful because it just goes to show that he's actually a bloody good filmmaker. You know, it's yeah. not just. There was all this talk about in, in Japan, a lot of the film directors were going, oh, Kitano is like representing Japan at Cannes and Venice now. Mm. He, he's not a proper film director, it's all a gimmick. But I think you look at something like A Scene at the Sea. And Sonatine and Hanabi, and you see yeah. that this is a really talented filmmaker who's made you know mm. masterpieces. I, st- I still enjoy stuff like Dolls and everything. You know, before he went you know off the off the cliff a bit uh, in the <laughs> mid two thousands, which he definitely did. That trilogy mm. of Takashi's 
glory to the filmmaker and the tortoise so jesus i mean that's that was enough enough to kind of put me off him for you know properly i enjoyed the outrage films but mm. i didn't what was the other one he made the the seven henchmen you so when the seven henchmen yeah that's it it didn't it wasn't crazy about that so just but i think you've got a special mention uh sort of wild card to throw in for recommendations black rain yes um, one of my earliest experiences with Japanese film was going in the late 80s when I first moved up to London to the Scala in King's Cross where I saw a double bill of Violated Angels by Koji Wakamatsu, 1960s very avant-garde experimental pink film, and Ballad of Nariyama, uh, mm. which was the uh, Shohei Memora Can Palm Door winner from 1983. And both of them, I think, was a seminal scene of... Um, you know how I got into you know Japanese film. I mean, I did, they didn't make much of an impact, but they sort of lingered with me. But I think it's mm. like with me, Imamura was one of those directors when I was getting into stuff like Hanabi. Uh, there was yeah, the eel Unagi had just won the Palm oh, yeah. uh, mm. uh, d'Or at Cannes, and mm. so I went back and explored a lot of Imamura's work. I like Imamura a lot. I think he's a fascinating director. Profound Desire of the Gods being one of my favourites, but better than Nariyama would always have that special place in my heart. But um, yeah, I think I just wanted to mention in Black Rain in terms of like it's the uh, 75th anniversary of Hiroshima coming up this mm, August. Okay. Uh, mm. And in terms of films about Hiroshima, it's, it's one of the best ones, I think, uh, from a Japanese director. And uh, yeah, I, don't, I didn't have a huge amount to say. I mean, it's, it's possibly in terms of connecting to Ozu again, everyone says this is a very <laughs> Ozu-style film. And the, the, the funny thing was that Imamura began his career at Shochiku in the early 50s as an apprentice, uh, not an assistant director, but like an assistant to the assistant to the director sort of thing. <laughs> uh, to Ozu working on Tokyo Story in Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice and these kind of films and uh, he he was not a big fan of uh, Ozu at all and uh, he, he said you know this is the kind of Japan I this, this image of Japan I hate in the, probably the same mm. way that people in the 60s would have looked at an Ealing comedy and said this is like a celebration <laughs> of everything that's banal about uh, British culture but then not realise that actually was a satire of British culture at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think Imamura said he, he didn't like Ozu's working methods but he, he said that I wouldn't say I wasn't influenced by Ozu but I just didn't want to be influenced by Ozu. So he's a lot... <laughs> that's, a no, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> and lots of those directors, the new wave directors of the sixties, hated Ozu in the same way that Godard used to go about the cinema de Papa and stuff, you know. And, but then they sort of came of age, looked back as these angry young men, looked back and said, "Actually, well, you know, this is where we came from." And actually, there was something more interesting going on than we thought. But mm. um, Black Rain probably is the most similar to Ozu in that respect. And it's it's mm. a portrait of okay. a family caught in the the. the wake of the Hiroshima bombings trying to marry off a, a daughter who's Hibakusha who's you know contaminated but, I, but like we were saying I mean I guess you're right absolutely with this season on the one hand you look at this BFI season and oh okay that again that again that again that again mm. but at the same time I both for for newcomers you know this sort of taste of course and you know, and for folk like me you know who should probably should probably have seen more of these than I actually have you know, just because it's a great the, chance to catch up. Yeah. I, know, I know, I'm mm. in the same position as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
James, shall we move on to your selections? Yes. Um, for my selections, because you know I'm quite you know intellectual and everything, I've gone for three films with a literary connection. Everything, as you'll see, a kind of tenuous, tangential kind of literary connection, but there is one nonetheless. Um, so the first one I, I picked was The Woodsman in the Rain from 2011. And we're going to have to, you know, apologize for my Japanese pronunciation, which is worse than my Chinese pronunciation, which is, which is saying something. But, um, so 2011 film by Shuichi Okita. Uh, it was actually based on his own novel. Apparently, so that's you go. That's the kind of literary connection. He, he went on to do stuff like a story of uh, Yonosuke and everything. Mm. I mean, this was this was one. Mohican comes home. That's right. He, I mean, he had quite, yeah, a, yeah. quite a few films on, uh, particularly after Woodsman and Rain. I think is there's, there was a run of yeah, much a film a year that was kind of cropping up from him. Yeah, he yeah. never he never seemed to kind of like really break through into well into the west anyway at least you know in, in terms of like uh attracting a huge amount of fans or anything but it was you know so th this film based on his novel um although the script was by the person who wrote underwater loves script you know the the pinku one yeah with the, the, the the kappa <laughs> the, the <turtle laughs> which chris chris doyle shot right i believe so. yes the uh, german uh, japanese co-production yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there you go. There's an interesting connection there. But uh, so Woodsman, Woodsman in the Rain, it's it's got a plot which sounds similar, uh, I guess, to One Cut of the Dead. You know, in the you know, it's it's a young, it's a young filmmaker who's making a super low budget zombie film. Uh, and I guess it's you do. well, absolutely. <laughs> if I was a young filmmaker, I would. I mean, a... But now you're an old filmmaker, <laughs> and you're going to make a film about the Bobels. Exactly. And I'll have to. I'll, so no, I'll it'll be the other way around. So I'll be like the old filmmaker who has to form a friendship with some young person somehow but i'm too grumpy for that so it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> doesn't really matter but um but yeah it's it, you know he, so it's in kind of like a rural mountain village everything where they're, they're shooting like a super low budget zombie one uh, and he kind of gradually becomes friends with this old old guy who's uh you know unsurprisingly he's a woodsman and the, the old guy kind of gets more and more involved actually in the film process uh, actually i think mm -hmm. if i remember rightly he actually plays like a zombie like an extra yeah. at one point so you know, I love films about filmmaking, and although it's, a, I hate saying it has gentle humor, but this film, you know, it's better than it saying does. it's quirky. It's true. It's actually really true. It's not quirky. It's, it's quite, not that quirky. Yeah. This one, but it is gentle, uh, and it's a and, very and nice look at the filmmaking process. It's it's quite it's quite soft in the way that it plays the drama. I mean, I think one of the things that is the real benefit of this film is the lead, the lead star in it, who mm. is um, Kochi Kochi Kusho. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's kind of uh, you know he's he, he's a real presence. I mean, mm. he is you know and it has been in, in in so many films for well the uh, eel mm. of course. Yeah. Oh, there we go, connection man. Yeah, you know and and um, pure. He's in mm. he's in one of the films that James is going to talk about shortly uh, as well. <laughs> and, um, he, you know, so many. He, but he he's a very recognisable star. But he there is mm. a reason because he is he is great, and I think he yeah he helps ground the film which could have been yeah. kind of uh, maybe a little too kind of quirky low budget kind of a, a, a film but because he's there he mm. just adds a bit I think it, I, I, yeah and I think that's one of the things why, why I like this film so much is that it is actually quite grounded for this I mean I love One Cut of the Dead and stuff and everything but this, is, this isn't like a very outlandish film and he is you know he's kind of depressed in the film his character and there, there is like a genuine 
relationship which kind of with the you know the old fellow the woodsman and everything like that mm. and it does kind of come to there's no like earth shattering twists or, or big you know who's a widower and you've got all this yeah. kind of stuff and then he's got this slightly kind of a strange relationship going with his son mm, mm, mm. um and and you know he, he gets very i mean without kind of going into too much of the plot but you know he gets very involved in the filmmaking when he's yeah. actually supposed to be um paying reverence to his his the, the second anniversary of his wife's death mm. and you know it's it, it is about dealing with loss and yeah. it's, it's quite nicely done because it's quite softly done I think that's what what kind of works about the film so what softly I mean, that, that, that does sound like damning with being damn, you know praise you know but, it, but you're right it you're, abso- you're absolutely right it's, it's a I'm going to go one worse and say it's such a nice film <laughs> there you go. that's even that's even light life affirming <laughs> bittersweet the, that, yeah, there's the quote on the BFI advert. It's such a nice film. It's gentle. It's sweet. It's lovely. It's a lovely film. <laughs> but it, but it, I don't know. But it's but it is you know as a film about filmmaking as well. It does kind of get down to some of the kind of nuts and bolts of the production problems, which That's I really I really like as well. It's, so. it's quite interesting because I mean a, a few podcasts ago we we talked about the uh, infamous ah uh, indeed indeed guinea, guinea pig. pig films yeah yeah and also uh, as part of that you know there is the, the behind the scenes filmmaking and this yeah. does actually feel quite genuine Absolute, in the way that in, in the kind of process that they show of a pretty low budget yeah. but just, reasonable size it, yeah, just into it I, I absolutely yeah. agree it really and I think this film in a different way I mean keep mentioning One Cut of the Dead it's you know it's a similar emotion or passion I guess but Wisdom in the Rain is a very different way you know, in which actually kind yeah. of brings it forward, but no less, no less passionate or anything. And it's, I, it's a good time for rediscovery for this film, I guess, especially yeah. given the success and the popularity of, mm. you know, One Cut of the Dead and stuff. But it's less overtly quirky. It's a less overtly quirky than other third window comedies at the time. I mean, I think so, this quite funny. This <laughs> I haven't actually seen Woodsman of the Rain. And, um, <laughs> I would say there was a time because I was um, when that came out. So I was doing quite a lot of festival programming, and I was getting bored mm. of writing when you have to write the synopses for, you know, mm. Japanese films. Trying to find <laughs> of synonyms for the word quirky. So I'd always had there's lots of things where I assume will be quirky. Uh, so I haven't. I think Third Window actually released a film with the name Quirky in, didn't they? There wasn't there a, a sort of oh, quirky, quirky guys and quirky girls. Quirky girls, that's it. Yeah, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we love Third Window. And it's no, it's, it's no, it's no slight on at all because I mean they, they, they you know, they release some really great films. Here, right? No, but no, of course the, they, they, I mean, the, the, the quirkiness is funny. <laughs> they, they've done a remarkable job of like redefining mm. what Japanese cinema was. I mean, I think that's the problem. Is like. Yeah. Everyone has these ideas of what Japanese cinema is, and and after like mm. Battle Royale and Ring and Audition and everything, it was always this J horror, ex- extreme Japan. So many decent mm. films got lost in the mix there, and um, I was so happy when Adam came along with Third Window. I mean, he, they put out some, you know, showed a totally different side. I mean, how, absolutely, yeah, mm. and, and, that, and, and made that, a success yeah, of it as well. I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty, you know, particularly into the mid, yeah, the sort of starting in the mid to late. Noughties, you know, mm. actually making it viable as, mm. absolutely as, yeah. a, as a label was as actually bringing very well. No, I've still got all my not the big up Adam, I've but got you know, most of their films on DVD, still, you know, no, 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 yeah, no, it's, it's um, yeah. <laughs> and when we're so when we're saying it's quirky, it was just that, yeah, they, they did uh, they did manage to curate or find those kind of films which all kind of fit mm. into this. You know, sort of very nice. I don't know, genre, subgenre, almost. But no, you're right. It was complete, completely different 
vision of Japanese film for I because I you know I grew up thinking of uh, the extreme Japanese cinema <laughs> and stuff like that which you know which but I'll blame guinea pig for that probably but um, I mean again it's, the, you know yeah but it's like we, you were saying about 1990s I always had this idea mm. that uh, Japanese cinema was very pessimistic or very soul-searching or or sort of ex mm. you know thinking about what 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 does it mean to be Japanese you know there's lots of these yeah. very serious films and there was a definite turn. I mean, it's you. You often look at uh, whatever particular labels are, are releasing and or whatever festivals are showing. You think is that really indicative about what's going on on the ground? Mm. But I mean, I I certainly noticed. You know, from the mid two thousands around two thousand eight, there was a definite mm. sea change in Japanese cinema where things did get a lot more frivolous. So not frivolous, but fun. Mm. I mean, I guess a, yeah. a lot more. You know the. the cold face of Kitano sort of melted and twitched twitch a smile, you know, broke into a big grin, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's an interesting one. That kind of leads, I guess, on to the, the second one, which you, you know, mentioned there, like Audition. Uh, mm. still, which, you know, I love Audition, but that, that was, for me, you know, it was, what, 1999 it came out? And I remember watching yeah. that in the cinema. Um, I actually think it was the Coors in Soho because I was on a, a rare trip to London from the, the badlands of Glasgow uh, at that time. You know, I, I, as I say, like pre-internet, which it probably wasn't, uh, I, you know, it was mainly ring and <laughs> at that time. So Whatever. watching audition with like a group of friends, you know, who were not really film people, let alone Japanese film people. And for the first, you know, hour or so, that oh yeah, this is okay. This is quite nice. And then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly everything goes south. Uh, but I... The reason I like Audition so much, it's not really the gore. We're, you know, I guess we just have to assume people haven't seen it, so we won't talk about the ending and everything. But it's just... But, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like it's 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 about 80% not what people would have expected from, you know... Yeah, for sure. Would, would, be, would expect to be from our, not even a J-horror film, but a horror film. I mean, there's I, a yeah, build absolutely. of suspense, but, you know, it only comes... Or fans of like Miki going back to it, you know, somebody going back to it now mm. is, you know, associating Miki still with, you know, the sort of obviously the over tops, over the top stuff, whether it's each of the killer, even through to, you know, first love. The category. Well, it's, it's yeah. interesting because you say it was pre-internet, but actually that was the one, one, of, one of the films that launched Midnight Eye. That was like the, the oh, you know, okay. when we look at these foundational films, the other was Battle Royale, but um, mm. this was a film that I saw, it was 2000, I mean, it was a 1999 Japanese release, it but it wasn't, right. it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a big yeah. Japanese release. It was done on straight to video. Okay. And oh, okay. it somehow played in Rotterdam, and I was living in Holland at the time, it was it played in Rotterdam mm. 2000 as an example of the new bloods, the new breed of filmmakers coming out of Japan at the time. I think Tony Raines might have had some hand in curating that. <laughs> but it was a similar thing. It went, yeah. I, 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 it was when I first met Tom, it was the very beginning when we first uh, founded Midnight Eye, when we were first talking about founding Midnight Eye. Mm. And, yeah. um, I remember like going to the cinema, not having a clue what it was about, reading the synopsis mm. in Dutch, so I didn't even know what, what even what the film, <laughs> what what genre it was in, and yeah. as you say, it was like the first hour, it's very gentle, and then suddenly I just remember mm. like this, this people stampeding from the cinema. It, it literally was a case of like this was the first European ever screening, and. Mm. Me just being left in this chair with like about ten other people 
cackling to myself. <laughs> and then I, Tom had caught another screening of it, and I was like going, oh, did you say Audition is just the most insane film I've ever seen? And he goes, well, you haven't even seen Dead or Alive, you know? And I know Tom, that, was the, that was the time definitely Tom got obsessed with, like, Mikey. And, mm. um, you know, yeah. it was a, a pivotal moment. And definitely yeah. the fact that we, we managed to get all the uh, interviews with Mikey and, and um, reviews of that sort of stuff online just before it mm. came out in the UK. So it was sort of an interesting time. Because like I said, but, at that time, it was like literally, it was Kitano. And that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that was part of the thing, like going into the film with, you know, probably different expectations, which you didn't really have a clue what was actually going to happen. In it. But it's it still, I, I watched it again not too long ago. And it's still... It still really holds up. I mean, I mm. as well at the time with Ring being popular and everything, mm. oh, incredibly popular. It kind of you know not consciously bucked that trend, but in the way it was marketed in the UK, I guess you could say with what's her name. Um, I can't pronounce her name at all to save myself. Uh, I, I've got. I've actually got it written. Ahi Sheena. Yeah, she's not Ahi Sheena. Yes. But I can't yeah, think of many of the other things she's been in at all. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Tokyo, like, Tokyo, Tokyo Golf please. please! Yes. <laughs> she was in but pretty I, much every one of those splatter films. Oh, for shame, man. Those are classics. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely, she, yeah, it was, it was sort of packaged in the UK in, in, in the sort of aftermath yeah. of The Ring, and it was mm, that's when Tartan yeah. sort of founded this. The, the Tartan Age. Tartan Age Extreme. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. When I watch it again, no, it's just, it, it's not like the gore or anything which gets me. It's, it's a depressing film. It's yeah. you know you, like the novel isn't uh, by uh, you know Murakami isn't as graphic or anything, but it, it's it really kind of distills that kind of really depressing, you know his whole plan to try and you know, without going into all the plot you know try and woo somebody through this kind of fake audition process is quite mm. it's quite grim and yeah you, yeah. you have that you have this scene you know it's not a spoiler because it's maybe a third of the way through the film where they've done the audition stuff and everything and she's. Then it just cut, keeps cutting back to like this shot of her sitting in this dark apartment with her head down, waiting, kind of waiting by the phone, the phone to ring. And then it finally rings, and you see this tiny little smile on her face. That that's fucking creepy. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of really yeah. subtle. But it's all, but it's also depressing as hell. I mean, is she really just sitting there? I mean, that's how these different shots kind of suggest that she's literally just sitting there with her head bowed. Is that some kind of male fantasy thing? Like you know, here's this subservient woman waiting for him, but it's. Those shots, the way they're framed, those But what's interesting about, um, like, it's a film that you're watching it and it sort of starts with like a romantic drama and mm. it turns weird at a certain point. But trying to isolate, if you watch it again, which mm. point is it that it actually turns weird? Because Absol you're never quite absolutely. sure, you know, it's, that's what's so clever about it. It's just, it goes yeah. into something off its own tangent. Yeah, just with, with no warning or no, there's no clear boundaries what is dream and what is reality it's, it's quite interesting yeah uh, and i think that's it's one of the only films where i think that works i get really annoyed by those kind of is it real is it not oh yeah, that's like, tedious, I, yeah i really fucking hate that but it actually works in the song because it kind of in a way it makes it more depressing because is this you know this guy's own sort of fear of connection is his own fear of intimacy or is he just you know emotionally incapable of actually engaging with a woman properly, everything. So it, it works on different levels, all of them mm. depressing. Can I, I just, uh, to bring it back to Blank Rain, actually, what's really interesting uh, sure, is sure. that the um, Imamura's son, Daisuke mm. Tengan, actually wrote the script for uh, Mike's audition. Oh. And no Mike was okay. the assistant director of Black Rain, and he actually prop pops up in wow. a cameo there. 
in, in Black no Parade. No idea. So it's, it's, it's cool. really interesting, this it's transition from like the classical Japanese to like the new extreme. Mm. This is like the most coherent podcast ever. Everything is linked somehow. There's always some link, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I read the, the novel actually after I saw yeah, the film too. and everything. Yeah. And, it, and it's a good novel apart from the kind of creepy, the creepy way it was kind of marketed with the sort of anime anime character mm. on the front and everything but uh, I, I preferred he also did like In the Miso Soup Murakami which uh, I thought was a better novel than Audition but which I don't think is it was supposed to be made into a film several times by like Vim Vendors or Herzog but I don't think it ever did either way Audition 100% it's my favourite Miki film he's made a lot of great stuff he's made a lot of not great stuff. <laughs> He's made a lot of stuff full stop. Well, there is that, yeah. yeah exactly. Very true, man. Very true. Every, so, time, uh, every time I get down on Mika, I just think, go back to audition. It's sort of, it is a very special film yeah definitely but it, yeah it, but it's incredible i think it, you know his other stuff when, when he's you know going for the wackiness of the gore and stuff you know he's an incredibly creative director but i think audition is you know is genuinely he's kind of like he, well held him, he felt he held himself on a leash for so much of it actually it feels like I'm so, absolutely he kind of pulled himself back from mm. ott that he's so famous for and actually that's what that's mm. one of the reasons it kind of works it just he doesn't there's a, Absolutely. there's a certain point where it blows up, but you know it's eighty percent of it is not that at all. No, no, it's just like I said. I just find it ever, it's an incredibly depressing film, as much as anything. Same as I find Ring yeah. incredibly depressing, to be honest. But uh, I prefer <laughs> Audition. I mean, Ring is depressing for different reasons. I guess. I mean, it's kind of uh, you know both both the you know the whole kind of curse at the the middle of it and everything, but also. You know all the, the endless shots of like you know these big buildings with all the windows and everything is looks like nobody's inside everything it's, mm. i mean they, they they both seem to be tying into this this still sort of um lack of human or fear of human connection yeah and everything mm. which oh. ties into the next one pulse or <laughs> pulse <laughs> <laughs> or 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 cairo but when it and this was another one i first saw this when the hong kong dvd came out and it was just called Cairo. And I didn't realize Cairo was Pulse for a while because, you know, just being a bit slow and everything. But it actually went by Cairo for quite a while before, mm. I guess, probably got a proper release here, which is kind of weird because a few other ones like Kakashi and everything, the Scarecrow Horror one and stuff, had the same, the same kind of issue where I got confused about them because half the time they were referred to by the, the English pronunciation version of their Japanese title. Yeah. So. But this, the, the literary connection for this one is that he... So he actually wrote, you know, Kyoshi Kurosawa. And we're actually, back to the Tintinet, the aren't we? We are, exactly. It's this damn internet this, business, this, man. This damn, damn Tintinet. I don't trust it, man, at all. I, <laughs> 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 well, but, you know, he wrote... After the screen, he wrote the script for this. Uh, and then he wrote the novel about it afterwards as well. So that's your literary connection for mm. this one. But, um, yeah, Kyoshi Kurosawa. Probably maybe my favourite Japanese director. Not related to Akira obviously mm. but i kind of prefer prefer kyoshi kurosawa <laughs> just based on everything you know based on everything that i've seen of his and everything and it's i don't know i would agree i think he's definitely the most interesting japanese mm. director well koreeda i love uh koreeda is always he's a divisive figure but you always know koreeda is going to mm. deliver He's gonna he's gonna deliver people being nice to each other. I'm not I'm a Korea fan. I'm not a Korea fan. He just every film is just people being nice to each other in a bittersweet way. 
swear it. Mm, no, no, I, well, I it would say... It just depends I, on how I, you I feel about you know, people being nice to I don't think they work as powerful <laughs> bits of cinema. But that's a totally different argument. But I would say yeah, that, that is, Kyoshi that Kurosawa, mm. when he hits the spot, he's absolutely he's, he's brilliant. And I think uh, Pulse mm. and Cure and Creepy mm, cure. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely really work in that way. Other times he's right. slightly sort of uh, misses the boat. But did, I think did you like uh, did you like his uh, French one? His French his French one is great as well, like the Daguerreotype one. That's yeah, very, surpri- surprisingly very cool as well. I really like that. But I I think with Pulse, it's just I, you know, fully admit when I saw it, like I I didn't know who he was. Uh, I saw the cover, which was a Hong Kong cover, which was basically just Ring, to be honest. And yeah, I, you know, I, yeah. I picked it up from a DDD House on DVD. I <laughs> know. Uh, I thought it was going to be another Ring one, and again, it was just hashtag sponsorship available with DD House and the DDD House are listening. <laughs> well, what sponsorship are they going to give us? They're just going to send us DVDs, which my girlfriend will get angry but we bring more and more dvds <laughs> into the flat. yeah so if there's one thing we don't need is <laughs> <Exactly>. more dvds <laughs> but for the for this one like yeah and when you start watching it and everything it's just i think we touched on it earlier just there's such a palpable dread the entire way through the film yeah and it's just I mean, that's something he does really really well actually i think there's always absolutely. this kind of real sense of mm. oh what the fuck's gonna happen it's fucking creepy it's like yeah, it yeah, is yeah. creepy it is literally creepy it is like, creepy like you're going yeah you know absolutely. and you're like oh this is okay well everything seems happy but i don't trust him and this this this, <laughs> this doesn't feel right <laughs> with, with pulse like it's just it's it's just kind of a film about like loneliness and despair and the thought that maybe after you're dead it just doesn't get any better you know, you're still kind of you have people just like committing su- some people committing suicide some people are just kind of fading into black ash and well people... yeah well, that's the thing it's just that, that yeah. the, the sort of fading away isn't it it's just that absolutely you can't see characters just in the background just like sort of evaporating into shadows and it's there's, yeah, there's, yeah. There, there's like one or two scenes where the ghost actually a ghost makes the effort to try and put the scare on someone but most of the time the ghost just kind of stand around <gasps> Oh, <laughs> and just, and that's, that's that's horrible, man. That's much more depressing than you know your goddamn you know like Sadako or I mean, crawling out of TV. Jesus, man. I mean, I think I sh- think it might be youngsters wondering what's going on because this is this, <laughs> this in terms of the the tinternet, um, <laughs> because the, the, this is the era of the AOL installed discs and the dial-up modems and whatnot um, i mean i think we've we've actually i mean we've got to a point where that uh, uh, well i think you know i was watching this yeah recently and it's kind of uh, got to the point where finally that sound of the old uh, yeah, isn't yeah, quite yeah. as depressing as it used to be you know a decade ago oh, God, i yeah. still had the memories of oh god this JPEG is still loading. Oh, I'll come back in half an hour. We're not gonna. We're not gonna ask you which JPEG, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're it talking, doesn't matter. I ne- it never. I, it never loaded anyway. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about an era, though. You know, just like a year after the Ring, or two years after the Ring, where like the, the whole yeah, idea yeah. of a, the most horrific thing you could ever find is a, a VHS tape. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, <laughs> with busted tracking. <laughs> <laughs> that was the true horror of Ring was like Jesus actually if you got the tracking no now we've got the, internet and, <laughs> and things not loading properly but the other great thing about Pulse is you still have this like this mad Michael Bay moment later in the film where the plane goes overhead you're like oh Jesus man it's kind of like a telephoto lens like sweeping and, and at that point things have got very this, very strange it's, yeah. it kind of it 
it actually kind of ties in with is it before we vanish mm, that's right yeah yeah well things go he kind of does some of the similar similar things at the end of, of that as well that's true that's true but but, but for me you know and, and i do like all of it i think i've seen all of us i mean that even down to some of the you know the earlier stuff like the serpent's path and stuff like that oh well that's are, good yeah man, they're, they're spider, really, excellent films man yeah really really he's he's one of those directors where uh, you know pretty much everything he does i don't think i've ever seen a bad a bad film by him what i, I mean say, what i like is like stuff with the um you know cure and pulse he basically mm. creates horror films with no monsters yeah. you know the, the, there uh, are no yeah. scares no people jumping out it's just mm. everything that you would associate with horror is just taken out. Absolutely, and, uh, absolutely, and, and that's that kind of dread thing he creates, like his atmospherics and everything like that. And he does, I don't, and I, uh, I'm a hater of slow cinema and that kind of stillness. I really hate that. But with him, like he, he's one of those few directors who can actually fill a frame with kind of dread without actually doing that much. In some ways, you know, it's some of the stuff he does yeah it, it is proper creepy like mm. you know, I, and I think Pulse again you know I, I did rewatch it again uh, recently another one I've never seen on the big screen but it's everything about Pulse is, is profoundly depressing it's nihilistic it's just <laughs> and that's kind of you know that's kind of the real you know that's more of the real horror like you say I, I like Ring but it's you know something like Cairo uh, is uh, much more of an impact for me mm. uh, I think than some you know angry teenager crawling out of a TV you know <laughs> where you probably you know if she did that if she did that in Glasgow good luck you know that's all, I, that's all, I'm, that's all I'm gonna say you know good luck lass you know <laughs> there you go that's my three. and you said like a, a wild card so I'm not gonna talk about it because it's it would be a different episode but I think it's a good taster of the season as well for Sion Sono films as well because mm-hmm. it, it's got some of the kind of key works before he kind of disappeared up himself you know for a while so you've got unfortunately you don't have suicide club suicide circle which is my favorite of his films but you've got like tokyo tribe love exposure goldfish so i i think for people who and again he's another one who you know going back a few years everyone was talking about him and then he kind of faded off a bit mm. and everything yeah. I, I like the forest of love recently but apart from that he hadn't done anything which i enjoyed for quite a while to be honest but it's, so those films actually being back uh, back for people who maybe haven't seen them everything I think is a good thing brilliant time to revisit yeah mm. I mean, I, I'm going to throw in one wild card as well which is and this is where it would be really again I think we kind of come back to this it's kind of would be mm. great to see it on the big screen I mean I have <laughs> been lucky enough to see it on the big screen um, uh, Udine but now Far East Film Festival but House House oh, of oh, yes. Late Grey mm. Nobuhinku Obayashi. Obayashi. Um, Classic, yeah. You know, it's is. Um, I think retroactively, it's kind of you know, it's kind of described as a a comedy, really comedy horror. But it is just so fantastic. It's such fantastic fun, and to see it on the big screen, just gives you it's so much more. You know, you, you it is one of those films where you want to be with a big audience watching mm. it, and you know, some of those people maybe for the first time, or some of those people just reliving what. A, Absolutely fun, absolutely. But it's got stupid, but uh, incredible soundtrack as well. I've got the soundtrack (laughs) in my selection. Um, Oh, it's quite. uh, It is by Godaiki who did the soundtrack to Monkey. It is very sinister in places, though. You got There's a few bits in it which are pretty unsettling as well. So that's why. That's why. That's why I like it so much because it is. It's it's proper nuts. Like it's not one. It's not quirky. 
it's genuinely pretty unhinged. I think it reminds me a lot of like um, Alan Parker's uh, Bugsy Malone in the way that <laughs> this is a bit of a tennis connection, not the film itself, but like Obi Ashley came from that. this background, experimental oh. filmmaking. But then he, off the back mm. of that, he became like this major figure in in advertising. You know, it's, it's, yeah. so it's like he he had like this um, his whole sort of stylistic sort of. Uh, Stick was came from his work on mm. TV, like Alan Parker's did, and and for mm. his first film, he was like apparently just talked to his daughter and said, "What? I want to make a feature <laughs> film. Tell me a good idea." And and the, so this this ten year old daughter said, like you know, let's make a film about like loads of teenagers that go to a haunted house and get terrorised by <laughs> eaten by a piano and turn into watermelons. And, but I think it's the same with Alan Parker. It's the same. He, he said, you know, like oh. What, what sort of film would you like to see to his daughter? And she said, I'd like to see like a gangster film with kids in it. Uh, <laughs> a musical gangster movie with kids in it. So uh, sure it, it's, it's sort of those that yeah, typical... And, and, like, and, and Parker got, Parker got uh, Paul Williams and, you know, and, and uh, Nobuyiko Obashe got, um, he got Kodaiki and, and kind of made them really as, as the... <laughs> One of the big pop bands, so... <laughs> Great example of the it stuff did. that could only have happened in the late 70s when everything else was, like, falling apart under the big blockbusters and you could there was still mm. room for some sort of, like, lunatic experimentation. So Yeah. But it's it's one of those films where still, over the years, like, it still kind of upholds, it's like, a popularity and everything. Whether it's, you know, different, you know, screenings of it in London cinemas or different releases on DVD, Blu-ray, everything. It's still... You know, it, it's kind of endured, I think you can say, with Taisu, you know, compared to other stuff mm. at the time. And right, I mean, rightfully so, like. But also, I think it's interesting because Obayashi was like, you know, uh, was sort of like, I mean, Alan Parker's a good um, comparison because he did lots mm. and lots of commercial stuff in the 80s. But he mm. is an interesting filmmaker. I mean, it, he made yeah. primarily commercial films, but are never going to get selected for like a retrospective at place like the BFI um, mm. or or other film festivals. And of course, he just died a couple of months ago. Um, mm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but his his work, Panagatami. I, I mean, I cannot believe that that never got showed in any film festivals in the UK. Um, beautiful mm. work about like um, three hour work about uh, teenagers in the run up to the war Dunnan's equally flamboyant experimental mm-hmm. style and um, mm. he, he did lots of serious I mean he was pushing it right until the end and I love do you want to give a plug for the fact that that comes out soon well, from Third Window and I'm thank God for Third Window for putting out because I think that's an <laughs> yeah. astonishing very brave bit of distribution Ab- uh, absolutely yeah. I mean here's Razor Glass uh, there you go cheers you are, Third Window cheers here you go. cheers to you because I just think it was interesting with Hanagatami uh, he he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and given mm. three months to live, and so he Jesus. immediately set out and made a three and a half hour long film, <laughs> finished it, and then made another three and a half hour long film. Places the, the other so it's like Hannah Gatami, He made another film after that. So his name was Labyrinth of Cinema, I think it's called. But um, yeah, mm. I mean, I think we need to definitely reassess people like um, Obiashi's place in, in film history, definitely. Mm. Absolutely. And, and yeah, no, we'll say again, I would have loved to watch House again on the big screen. Uh, no doubt, man. But, uh, you know. I mean, I hope that kind of comes together for later in the year. Yeah. Because I think, I, well, mean, I don't know what will happen with, with some of this, but it we, would be nice to see some of these 
at least some of these films kind of playing on a big screen. We hope definitely. for the we hope for the best, man. In that regard, I guess. Yeah, definitely. That's it for this episode. Japan 2020 is live on the BFI player now and runs towards the end of the year. Good Morning, Rashomon, Audition, The Woodsman and Rain and Pulse are available now uh, with Hannah Bai and Black Rain online later in the year. If you have any comments on these films or other favourites to share, then let us know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest or LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google or YouTube. <laughs> Comprehensive. Big thanks to Jasper for being part of this show. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, it's time to go now, so uh, let's say uh, cheers. Cheers, Cheers, man. Bye. Cheers. We'll see you. Cheers. Keep keep drinking.